Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another Bully Pulpit from the USC Center for the Political Future here at the University of uh, Southern California. I'm Mike Murphy. I'm here along with my director and good friend uh, and partisan opponent for many decades, Bob Shrum. So today, the Bully Pulpit is addressing a very important topic that I think a lot of people are interested in, which is our, our catchy title, Voting Rights and Voting Wrongs. And we've assembled a, a stellar panel here to discuss this. And then at the end, using the chat room, don't be shy, send us your questions and we will try to get to them. So let me begin right now by introducing our fine panel. My old friend, Linda Chavez. Linda is an author, commentator, and chairman of the Center for Equal Opportunity. She's been honored by the Library of Congress as a living legend and has held several appointed positions in government, including staff director of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights and White House Director of Public Liaison. Theodore Johnson, Ted is the director of the Fellows Program at the Brennan Center for Justice. His work explores the role that race plays in electoral politics, issue framing, and disparities in policy outcomes. His latest book, available on Amazon, When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America, outlines a path toward a multiracial national solidarity to finally overcome the existential threat of racism in the United States. Ralph Nees. Ralph is senior counsel on voting rights at the Century Foundation. He served as the executive director of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights for 15 years. The lobbying arm of the, it is the lobbying arm of the civil rights movement. He directed two dozen national campaigns that strengthened the nation's major civil rights laws during the Reagan-Bush administration. Pete Peterson. Pete is the Brown Family Dean's Chair and a Senior Fellow at the Davenport Institute for Public Engagement and Civic Leadership at the Pepperdine School of Public Policy. He's a national speaker and writer on issues, the full gamut related to civic participation and the use of technology to make government more responsive and more transparent. So tremendous panel today. And I'll kick things off with the first question, which is, Coming from me, of course, the simpleton question, but I think a lot of people are curious about this. So we have a wonderful democracy, but why don't more people participate? Why don't more people vote in the United States? What are the factors that hold people back from participating? And I'd say, you know, is it systemic in every case? Is it some, do some people vote by choosing not to vote? Why don't we have higher voter participation in the United States? I think it's lamentable that we don't have more people voting, uh, although we had very good turnout uh, in the last uh, few elections. Uh, some of it, I think, um, does have to do with access. I mean, there are people who uh, still find it difficult to cast votes. Uh, ironically, the pandemic, which made it um, a challenge for everybody to cast votes, ended up helping those people who, for example, uh, were able to cast their votes uh, through mailing in the ballot or uh, doing early voting. Uh, but there are also, I think, uh, a group of people who are basically satisfied with the way things are and choose not to vote uh, and don't really feel that their vote matters very much. I think 
uh, when you don't feel your vote matters very much, uh, that says something about um, not just you, but it also says something about the country. And I think that's the most lamentable uh, group, those who uh, feel that, that their vote doesn't matter and so they don't bother to cast it. What about systemic obstacles? I, you know, I'm a conservative Republican, but I, I saw the, the Georgia law, and I don't think after they were done drafting it, the Republican drafters all high-fived each other and said, boy, we're going to solve the turnout problem with this. This is going to bring more people to the polls. Is there increasing systemic barriers? Because I've also heard political scientists, though this is kind of an uh, um, older view, say some people choose to vote. There are three kinds of people, you know, voters who register and choose not to vote, voters who choose not to participate at all, and people are participating. Is it a choice or is it a mix? I'm just curious from people who've been in the trenches on this for a long time, what do you think? Thank you. Um, and so I, I want to reference uh, a, a Knight Foundation study that was done just a couple of years ago. And they basically said, who are the 100 million Americans that do not vote, especially in presidential elections, never mind the poorer turnout in local and state elections. And they basically found that there are three main reasons people don't uh, participate. One is that they don't like the candidates, that there's a lack of, they feel like the candidates don't have integrity or that they're sort of uh, making these false promises that they can't deliver on. And so because they're not inspired by any of the candidates, they opt out. Another is that they don't like the system of voting. And this goes to your question, Mike, about uh, the, the systems. The registration processes can be uh, difficult to understand where to go, uh, to where to go vote based on which polling places are open or which one is you're supposed to go to that's different from the last time you voted, um, whether or not your registration is still valid, whether or not you have the right ID, even though it worked in the previous one, maybe the, it doesn't work in this next one because of changes to the law. So the system becomes so convoluted, so difficult to understand that people just opt out, never mind the, the sort of requirements on people's time to, to go vote. Um, and then the third thing is that they don't feel like they're qualified to vote. Um, they're being bombarded with messages about, is it, you know, green energy versus fossil fuels, high taxes versus low taxes, wealth taxes versus, you know, education spending. And it's, there's so many issues with so much nuance and complexity and so many um, falsehoods and, and fact checks that are, are contested that they don't feel like they have a handle on the issues well enough to participate. All of these things um, are, are, are things that harm our ability to participate in our democracy, which ultimately harms our ability to be governed in a way that is responsive to the will of the people, because, because the will isn't, isn't uh, always expressed in the way that it should be. So this is, these are some of the reasons that people have said uh, why they, they choose not to vote. Mike, can I add one? Yeah, sure, Ralph. I agree with much of what has been said right now. And uh, especially with respect to how difficult the United States makes it to be able to vote compared to almost all democracies around the globe. But Ted, I think you've written about this, and I know I have and done uh, studies with Julian Bond while uh, he was alive and working with the NAACP, and that's the systemic efforts by, at least over the last 40 plus years, the Republican Party to suppress the vote, voter intimidation, voter deception, uh, the voter purges of the uh, voter rolls, uh, one effort after another. And I know we're going to discuss the reason uh, for all of the voting rights measures in Congress right now. But once again, we're having maybe the worst voter suppression, uh, perhaps in over 100 years. I certainly think we're experiencing the greatest threat to democracy since the Civil War. And we've had 19 states 
enact 33 laws that either suppress the vote or would allow election subversion, legislatures to overturn the results of election. But this is a consistent pattern over many decades, over 150 years or more. And we've got to take it. And I know we're going to be talking about it. Uh, but this is the kind of situation Michael Gerson uh, summed up today in the Washington Post, looking at what's happening with voting and all the impediments and all the disincentives, all this suppression. And he said something along the lines that catastrophe is in the front room. And in the weather forecast is the apocalypse. We're in, as George H.W. Bush used to say, really deep doo-doo. And voting is the one way out of it and why the Congress has to do something about it as soon as possible. Yeah, Bob. Let me follow up on that. And I'm going to start with Ralph, but then, Pete, I want you to come into this. So you talked about this raft of new laws that appear to make voting more difficult, that could subvert the outcome of the vote. Uh, can you talk about the differential impact on different groups and the two major political parties and the prospect that Congress will pass the kind of voting rights legislation that could prevent voter suppression? I, I would be happy to, uh, Bob. And uh, just to start off for a second, we had a an insurrection by violence uh, back uh, on January 6th. What we've seen since January 6th is an unarmed insurrection uh, where you have this effort by the state legislatures uh, to basically possibly disenfranchise millions and millions of voters in 2022 and 2024 and beyond. You've got a great effort by the Democrats, unfortunately, we, we don't have Bob Bills anymore. Uh, we don't have Hamilton Fishes. It's a Democrat effort solely, either through the John Lewis Voting Rights Bill or through the Freedom to Vote Act, which would invalidate these 33 state suppression election suppression laws. And what's interesting, because most of us, understandably, in the United States, think that the principal uh, individuals who will be hurt by these uh, laws are racial minorities, that this is all about race. What people don't understand is that 25% of all eligible voters are people with disabilities. People with disabilities and older Americans and veterans will be or are the principal victims of these voter suppression and election subversion laws. I'm hopeful uh, that, and thanks to the Manchin-Colbuchar uh, compromise, and Joe Manchin did a terrific job on this, but of course the 8,000-pound gorilla in the room is the filibuster, which I'm sure we'll discuss a little bit later. Pete, you want to come in on this? I think as it relates to some of the debates that are happening in states right now regarding voting process is to what degree the COVID election of 2020 is going to fundamentally change the way that we host elections here in the country. It might be worth considering that prior to 2020, uh, 30 states allowed vote by mail for any reason, uh, both blue states and red states. 16 states you had to submit a reason to request a vote by mail ballot, and those were 
both blue states and red states, and only three states had automatic uh, vote by mail or, or voter registration and were supplied a ballot. What we saw in 2020 was that in many states, they went to that automatic vote by mail uh, request or being mailed a ballot. And so the question now, go, I think, remains, were the states that had a requirement for submitting a reason to request a vote by mail ballot in 2018, were those racially uh, inspired laws? And I think because you saw them in both blue and red states, it's a difficult case to make. My issue is more around election administration and are states ready from an election administration standpoint to handle full uh, automatic vote by mail um, uh, election administration. And I'm not sure that all states are ready to do that, but suffice it to say, I hope we're able to discuss this, not just from a partisan or racial or ethnic aspect, but also from an election administration aspect. It's something that's a fairly boring thing to discuss, but this is really a government service to supply vote by mail ballots automatically to, to lists that we hope are um, adequate and, and, uh, and clear and legitimate. Uh, but I think that needs to be a part of the conversation as well. Could I just uh, jump in here and offer uh, a thought too? Because I think when we talk about some of the laws that um, have been taking place uh, in the last year, some of the changes the state legislatures have been putting into effect, to me, the biggest threat coming from uh, those state laws has less to do with access to the ballot box than it does uh, with uh, basically nullifying uh, elections after votes are cast and uh, taking away, uh, particularly in presidential elections, uh, the right of the people to choose uh, the president uh, that, uh, that, that they want. Uh, in terms of, of access to the vote, I think there are really good public policy reasons why we should have more participation. I, like, I lived in Colorado for many years, and I like the Colorado method. You register to the vote very easily when you get a driver's license. You can do it other ways, but you're, you can automatically register when you get a driver's license. And every single registered voter is mailed a ballot. Uh, and then there's a you know, fairly uh, generous period of time when you can mail back that ballot or drop it off uh, at, a, at a polling site. Um, well, I do think that there are efforts in these state legislatures to try to make access to the ballot box um, uh, more restricted, uh, I think those are largely partisan driven. And uh, Pete's right that um, race uh, certainly, uh, it certainly has a different impact on different racial groups. Um, but I think a, a lot of Republican legislators that are enacting those laws uh, maybe uh, being too clever by half, and they're going to end up having, you know, their nose cut off despite their face because a lot of their voters are the very people, older voters, uh, et cetera, who rely on uh, those uh, mail-in ballots. So I do think there are two issues here, access to the polling place, but also what happens once your vote is cast and is it meaningfully accepted and or is it nullified uh, by some of the actions by these uh, state legislatures. Uh, Ralph, I, 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 I want to do one follow-up on this. You were a critical force, and I was there, 
uh, in the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act in 1982. You played a central role. Uh, we talked about, or you talked about, the Mansion Bill and the prospect that it would run into a filibuster. Is there any chance that at the end of the day, a frustrated Joe Manchin who said, I can get 10 Republicans to vote for a reasonable bill, if he can't get 10 Republicans, is there any chance you carve out an exception to the filibuster simply and only for voting rights? I agree with you about the prospects of Republican support. Uh, I don't think there's a snowball's chance in hell that Joe Manchin can go uh, and get those extra 10. I think he's beginning to understand it. And I think that makes it perhaps more likely that in the end, he could go for a voting rights uh, uh, carve-out. Uh, he's a protege. Uh, he, he adored Bob Byrd. And Bob Byrd said many times, our parliamentary rules, the Senate rules, are not suicide pacts. And he is the one who came up with carve-outs to the Senate rules and used the nuclear option. So I'm hoping that Joe Manchin, after he gets through this outreach uh, period, especially because of how much time and effort he put into the Manchin Klobuchar uh, uh, package, and what's at stake in 2022 and 2024 in our democracy, will choose democracy over the filibuster. Now, granted, I do want to make it clear, I and many others do support reforming the filibuster, and there is no way in the world we can get the 50 votes abolishing the filibuster. So I'm hopeful. I'm not betting the house on it, but I'm hopeful that Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema will go along with a carve out and will get the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis uh, uh, Voting Rights Act Advancement Act. The reason I think Manchin might get 10 votes, so the snowball may, may not melt totally in hell, is the argument for why he could be persuaded to change the filibuster on this topic. That's his leverage with the Republicans. So you either have a voice in this and give me 10, or Mitch, if you shut it down, I'm going to open the filibuster up, because he's also the deciding vote for that, along with with uh, Cinema, who's been characteristically silent on this. But, you know, so there, there might be kind of a gunpoint 10 Republican scenario based on that that I think is not uh, impossible. But anyway, we will see. If Man what Manchin wants, Manchin tends to get, because he's, he's holding the four aces in the Senate right now in a lot of areas. Mike, can I just follow up that in 30 seconds? Yeah. Uh, I, sure. I, I don't disagree uh, with so much what you just said. I certainly hope and pray that Joe Manchin and Senator Sinema will go uh, with a voting rights carve-out. I hope that they both contemporaneously can say, this Senate doesn't function. There's no bipartisanship. There's no regular order. Can they come up with something that says, here's a pathway forward? We're going to go with this carve out, but at the same time, we're going to recommend to the Senate and the country that we do things differently and have a new Senate select committee on bipartisanship and come up with recommendations that can be incorporated in the Senate resolution. Before we move on and I turn it back to Mike, Ted, you want to weigh in on this? I don't have much to add, except um, I do want to sort of highlight Pete's point about procedures. Um, a lot of times the disparate impact we see on communities of color or indigent, indigent working class communities, 
um, is based on the procedures associated with easier ways of voting. So for mail-in balloting, for example, it's not just as simple as receiving the ballot in the mail, marking your choices, and then putting it back in the mailbox. Um, you have to sign it. Sometimes, and many states require witnesses for that signature. Sometimes you have to sign the envelope in which the ballot is put before you put it in the other envelope that then goes into the mailbox. So all of these administrative requirements, never mind um, you know, ensuring that the post office picks up on time, delivers on time, um, and that, that the addresses are correct, th these administrative burdens are an issue. These procedural uh, issues uh, can affect who participates with ease and whose uh, route to participating is more complicated. And the point here, even if there's not racist intent, uh, on, on the outset or, or so, some sort of classist intent um, on uh, with uh, expanding the access to voter with these administrative requirements, those who uh, whose votes tend to be invalidated most tend to be younger folks and tend to be people of color. And that disparate impact uh, when it comes to counting the votes is where a lot of the concerns are raised around some of these procedures. You know, it, it's interesting. I'll, I'll kind of uh, transition us to the next question, but I want to make a point along the way. As somebody who's been a practical politician like Bob has been actually doing campaigns, you know, it's funny. I, I've always thought the California permanent absentee ballot system was a national model. You can, you can vote in person <clears throat> or you can request to be a permanent absentee voter like I am. Uh, it's a simple request to make. And then every election you've opted in and you get an absentee ballot, which you then sign, seal and, and deliver or physically drop off. It was a pretty good system. I'm a, a, a ferocious opponent <clears throat> of absentee ballot requiring some kind of excuse, which, which is madness. But then the pandemic came, as, as Pete you know, kind of explained all this, and we, we loosened it up. And now the governor's just signed a bill here in California to make it permanent. So if you're on a voter registration list, you get mailed a ballot. And while that sounds kind of utopian, it troubles me a little. Because one reason we don't have a lot of voter fraud uh, in the country is we haven't tried a lot of that. I know Colorado has done it for a while, but when you work in the election world, and if we got a couple of secretary of states here and got them drunk and shot them full of truth serum, they would admit the hardest thing they do is keep the voter list accurate moving through time. So over time, the voter list gets sloppy. They don't catch people who die. People move and don't report. The government's not that good at lists. Um, and so there's, there's kind of inflation of the voter list of dead voters. And then they try to purge it, which the government tends to be in most places pretty bad at. There's an error factor, just admin stuff. So I, for one, as somebody who's condemned a lot of these Republican attempts, I, I don't like the shotgun mailing everybody an absentee ballot if they haven't at least opted in to the system. So I guess the way I put the question, are, there, are any of these restrictions good systemically to make elections work better with high participation, or is any restriction automatically anti-democratic? Because that's kind of the weight of the argument yeah. now. If you're for any restriction, you're you're against democracy. Um, you know, and, and we have this binary debate going on, which I don't think does a complicated issue a lot of credit. But tell me, I'm wrong. <laughs> I may be contrary. I'll just jump in and say that I, I think this is where we see the bifurcation between politically motivated attempts to squelch civic engagement and, and challenges to election administration. Um, the, the point that you raised about the automatic voting, uh, mailing of ballots here in California, uh, California is one of a number of states that in mailing 
automatic and automatically mailing votes to people is not part of a multi-state network called the Election Registration Information uh, Center, or ERIC, of which Colorado is part of. And this is a multi-state compact where the election administration agencies of each one of those states passes information back and forth if people are moving in between. And the states that are a part of that tend to have much better lists. And so, uh, and any time that it has been raised, and I ran a rather ill-fated campaign for Secretary of State here back in 2014, whenever I raise this as an issue to say, hey, look, Colorado's doing this, blue states are a part of this, as well as red states, it was automatically met with, well, you just want to purge the voting rolls. And I do think, and sometimes, and I'll say that this can be also politically motivated as well, the issue around voter rolls is a real issue of voter of, of ballot integrity. It is not necessarily voter fraud, and I want to be clear about that. And I think Republicans sometimes deliberately confuse the two issues. But for us to say that the issue around voter rolls is not a real issue uh, that organizations like Eric are seeking to address, uh, we're not going to get to a good place there either. I think that's a very important uh, point that uh, Pete has made because I think it is uh, true that, uh, you know, terms like voter fraud uh, are thrown around a lot. I think there's actually not that much voter, real voter fraud that takes place. But there are, uh, there are problems, and the problems of having uh, a, a voter list uh, that is legitimate, that does reflect people who have a right to vote within a state, uh, I think there's a legitimate reason to be concerned about that. Uh, you dilute the votes of uh, legitimate voters if you allow people who do not have to write uh, to vote in a particular state to vote. Uh, and so, you know, as I said, I'm comfortable with Colorado uh, and uh, Colorado does participate uh, in that system so that their voter rolls uh, are proper. And, you know, we yes, we want everybody to vote. Yes, we want broader participation, uh, but we don't want people voting improperly. And as I say, when, when you have somebody casting a vote inappropriately, that dilutes the vote uh, of all of those who have cast their votes appropriately. How many people do we have voting inappropriately? How much voter fraud or lack of integrity is there in the system? Yeah, so this is something that the Brennan Center has actually studied, and um, they have found that the likelihood of a person voting in an election twice um, is about the, somewhere between the, the same incidence of one of us being hit by lightning or one of us being hit by a, a meteor, which is to say it happens, but it is so negligible and so um, uncommon that the likelihood that it changes election outcomes is basically zero. Uh, and so this is one of those er areas where people can point to an instance of voter fraud. Um, the, the one that immediately comes to mind is the case of Crystal Mason in Texas, a woman who was incarcerated, released, uh, still on probation, uh, but thought she could vote. And with the aid of an election worker at the poll station, uh, cast a provisional ballot in 2016. And now she's doing five years in prison in Texas for casting that, that vote uh, improperly. That's considered voter fraud. But is, if that is the person we're protecting against, someone who's done their time and wants to participate in democracy, then the, the medicine 
is worse than the disease. We, we, are, we are sort of cutting off our, our arms and legs uh, in hopes of uh, being, making a stronger body, and it just doesn't, it doesn't work that way. Voter fraud is not an issue we need to be um, up in arms about for, in, in terms of the integrity of our democracy or our elections. Well, you know, I, I'd agree it's, it's low, but if we make big systemic changes, we could create a system with these holes where it could grow. So the idea is how do you patch problems like the California information sharing so it couldn't start to happen? Robert, just a couple points. Uh, I just want to follow up, Ted. Uh, and my source probably is the Brennan Center some time ago. Uh, <laughs> but uh, that lightning analogy, the Post put out a study, 14 years, a billion voters in 31 credible cases of fraud. That's one out of every 30 million ballots. I think the second point, I, I want to underscore something that I believe both Linda uh, and Pete said about something automatically being a voter uh, restriction. Uh, I think a good example of a good compromise is what Joe Manchin and uh, Emily Klobuchar did on voter IDs. For a long time, there were either no voter IDs because they were prejudicial to poor people and to persons of colors and others, or that uh, it was absolutely essential uh, to prevent fraud. And what Manchin and Klobuchar did, they said, okay, there's got to be a middle ground there. So they came up with a voter ID, but they encompassed various ways of showing that you're a valid voter. Utility bills, student IDs, IDs that we use in Maryland, and Montgomery County. There's a way to do this, but you've got to be a Ted Kennedy and a Bob Dole. You've got to sit down and work this out. And that's what I think maybe concerns all six of us uh, more than anything else, uh, is the unwillingness, unfortunately, by one party right now to work out the kind of compromises we used to do on a fairly regular basis after all the partisan arguments and the ideological arguments to advance the country's interest, you sat down and worked out a timely bipartisan compromise. Exactly right. Let me follow up on that by asking, what does the fight that we're having right now over voting rights and voter suppression and the backlash to it reflect about the state of our democracy? I mean, Ralph, earlier on, you, you referenced Michael Gerson's column and the notion that catastrophe is sitting in the living room, there might be apocalypse. Are we really at a point where we could lose the essential foundations of our democracy, the integrity of the voting system, and the openness of the voting system? I'm going to go ahead and uh, start. I actually think we are at that point right now. Um, and it really goes back to the sort of unwritten compact that when you enter a political race and you declare your candidacy and there is a vote taken, that both the winner and the loser acknowledge the results. We have uh, avenues for people to challenge the vote. Uh, and during the last election, President Trump uh, and his supporters challenged the vote in uh, more than 60 uh, lawsuits. Uh, those lawsuits, with the exception of one, um, basically all found against the president. Uh, and so the refusal uh, on the part of President Trump to acknowledge defeat and to concede the election, I think, uh, strikes at the very heart uh, of our democratic process. Uh, to go on and to encourage uh, supporters to believe that the election was stolen, 
uh, that there was massive fraud, um, I think uh, compounds that problem. And we are in that period right now. A majority of Republican voters do not believe that Joe Biden won the last election fairly. Uh, I, can't, uh, I can't point to any point uh, in American history, with the exception of the Civil War, uh, when we've had this divided a country over this fundamental an issue. So I think we are uh, at the door of Armageddon. Pete, you more optimistic? Yeah, I guess I, I'm, I'm going to try to inject a little optimism. I think part of the challenge around the, the current federal debate around election administration is there can be a constitutional argument against the scope and scale not a partisan argument, a constitutional argument against the scope and scale of what uh, Congress is considering. Let us not forget the last major piece of federal legislation around uh, voting rights and voting administration, 2002, the Help Americans to Vote Act, HAVA, was passed 92 to 2 in the Senate. And what was different about that piece of legislation uh, versus what's being proposed now is not just the political culture in which we're living, but also what was being proposed. It was much more of a, a funding bill for state and local election administrators uh, to support them in modernizing their election systems. Yes, there was guidance on issues like voter ID and voting uh, machines, um, but I, I really do think that part of the polarization that we're seeing in the federal government right now around these issues is in part a constitutional battle. And uh, we can only look 20 years ago uh, to see a time when actually Congress came together, both in the Senate and the House, uh, to pass pretty sweeping election administration legislation. Let me advance that by asking a question, because my understanding is, and my reading of the Constitution is, that with respect to federal elections, Congress does have the power to override state rules and establish rules on its own. Is that correct? It, it does, especially if those rules are, are, termed, are, are deemed to be discriminatory against a protected class of people. So a, a couple quick things. One is um, the Voting Rights Act was reauthorized by George Bush in 2006 and passed in the Senate 98 to zero. And just seven years later, the Supreme Court determined that sections of the Voting Rights Act were now unconstitutional. So the thing that our legislative bodies, the body that's supposed to be representative of the will of the people, was passed with flying colors, bipartisan, deemed unconstitutional, at least portions of it, um, just seven years later. And now the act itself is, is basically disempowered. And when Congress tries to re-empower it, those constitutional questions basically raised by the Shelby County um, uh, opinion in 2013 that is now the basis for some of the constitutional uh, arguments around how much the federal government can, can intervene. On the, another point that's come up is that a lot of these things are partisan and not racial in nature. Um, and look, it's um, the, 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 both parties for as long as there's been voting in the United States have tried to shape the electorate in a way that will help their parties win office and hold on to power. So that, that is just the nature of democracy of trying to shape the electorate, either by determining who can vote, determining where they vote, or determining the process by which people can be eligible to vote. What the Supreme Court has done just recently has said, 
Um, when it comes to things like racial gerrymandering, that's still unconstitutional, can't do it. But when it comes to things like partisan gerrymandering or, or drawing districts or making these voting laws that give one party one advantage over another, that is not justiciable. That means that the Supreme, the courts, this is not a role for the courts to play because the remedy is the people can vote out of office those who are holding office that they don't like based on what they're doing. But of course, it ignores the fact that it's now more difficult to vote people out of office when the game has been rigged. I think in Wisconsin, something like more than 55% of, of folks in Wisconsin voted for Democrats. And yet, um, I think more than 55% of the seats in the state assembly went to Republicans. So we now have an assembly that's not representative of the expressed will of the people. I mean, we're still a nation that says our government derives its power from the consent yeah, I'm of the government. Head to the but the government's ability to provide their consent is being hampered by the way we jerry these rules to uh, for, for parties to entrench themselves in power. Both parties gerrymander, both parties try to shape the electorate either through expansion or, or constriction. So th these are some of the issues that are now front and center that, as, as Pete has pointed out, did not used to be. But um, some of the more recent Supreme Court holdings have, have nullified the thing that used to be quite bipartisan and now everything to include other sections of the Voting Rights Act that was just contested in the last Supreme Court term are up for question and provides lots of space for, uh, for creative people uh, to, to find ways to subvert the will of the, of the people expressed through elections. Ralph, you wanted in on this side. I'd like to say just, just a, 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 a point that's important. I'm a congenital optimist but I am less optimistic than I've ever been in my entire life. And it's not just Trump per se. What I'm most concerned about is, Bob, when you and I got to know one another, it was the beginning of the Reagan administration. We thought there was a second post-reconstruction just about to happen. The Mies uh, uh, Department of Justice, Brad Reynolds, that whole crew. And what did we get? We got Ted Kennedy lining up with Republicans, in the House, in the Senate, and the Democrats, and repudiated everything the Reagan Department of Justice was trying to do, while at the same time strengthening all the major civil rights laws by huge bipartisan majorities. What I fear, and some people have already referred to this, whether it's Republicans in the Senate, or in the House, or in the state legislatures, all they're doing is saluting Donald Trump doing whatever he wants. It's about power. Are they going to be primary? Are they willing to take them on? Where's the courage? Where's the integrity? Where's the bipartisan commitment to making America work? Linda, you were there, so but I, so I hope you won't mind if I say, at the end of the day, Ronald Reagan sided against the people who were advising him to veto the Voting Rights Act or to oppose the Voting Rights Act. And he not only signed it, he signed it with real ceremonial flourish and reaffirmed its essential principles. Linda, I'm a Democrat. I was on the other side, but I think it's only fair to say that. I actually uh, was not yet in the Reagan administration uh, at the time. I was still at the American Federation of Teachers. But I do want to uh, just say something that clarifies. Ted made uh, reference to the Shelby uh, decision uh, in the Supreme Court decision involving Voting Rights Act in Section 4 and Section 5, which required uh, certain jurisdictions to get pre-clearance uh, for voting changes. Uh, and I actually was an amicus on the winning side uh, of that uh, decision, or my organization was, I should say. And uh, I think we can have great differences of opinion on that. 
Uh, I don't think that um, the the decision in Shelby uh, takes us back to the uh, Jim Crow era. I don't think it takes. I don't think it uh, basically uh, makes the Voting Rights Act ineffective. I think the Voting Rights Act uh, is still the single most important civil rights law that was ever passed. So I just wanted to clarify that because you you have people on this panel who agree on a lot of things, but at least on the Shelby decision, um, I disagree. Can I clarify the clarification or are we running out of time? <laughs> we should keep moving, I think, because we want to get to some systemic things. But if you're, you're quick, uh, go ahead, Ralph. What happened in Shelby, what happened in Brnovich just a few months ago, eviscerated the Voting Rights Act. John Roberts, along perhaps with James Coping, is responsible in large measure for the election of Donald Trump. That 5-4 decision that John Roberts authored and Linda supports unleashed this torrent of anti-suppression laws set up an untenable situation. And Congress has got to come back and address the 2013 and the 2021 decision, as well as the Freedom to Vote Act. We need another uh, forum here so we can have a debate on Shelby, <laughs> but I probably should move on right now. Not to mention the Supreme Court. We'll do that another time. I want to quickly get to the systemic stuff, see what you all think about it. There's kind of a craze going on for ranked choice voting. We just had it, notably in the New York City mayor's race. Um, what's your balance sheet on it? Benefits, drawbacks, should there be more of it? Is it a better way to reflect the will of the people in an election? What do we think about uh, ranked choice voting? Yeah, I, I think it's a, a creative solution. I think a, a few places have already tested it out. New York City, for example, just, just did so. There's concerns about people not really understanding the process or whatever. I think those can be overcome. The biggest benefit of it um, is that it strikes at what I think is one of the biggest flaws in the way we currently vote in, in America, and that is a winner-takes-all system. If you win by one vote, then the people on the losing side of that election basically don't get an opportunity to, to, to be represented. You know, it's, um, it's ideally those congressional representatives, governors, senators, whatever, are supposed to represent all of their constituents. But we know in this very hyper-partisan environment, that's not likely. What ranked choice voting does it is it incentivizes people to win, to appeal to more, more voters, even those that are not in their base. And it's for that reason that I, I like this system of voting um, maybe in it, its structure could be improved here and there, but generally speaking, any system that incentivizes candidates running for office to appeal to more people than just those in the base of their party or those sort of um, very staunch partisans, I think is a better system of democracy and one that produces a, a style of governing that is responsive to more people within either a congressional district, a city, or the, the state and nation as a whole. Amen. Anybody against it? I tend to think it's a good reform, too. The other one I'm crazy for, I like open primaries because I'm a free market conservative. And the more people who participate in the market, uh, the better your argument has to be to win. Uh, and we, we've had some states that have done basically what we used to call the jungle primary, where everybody, regardless of party, is on one line. And that allows people to free uh, being tied up totally in the micropolitics of their respective primary. Do we like open primaries and some of these reforms? Do we think they would encourage more people to vote because they would get against that cynicism? Or do they weaken parties too much? 
which may or may not be a bad thing. Right now, I kind of want a weaker Republican Party, frankly, even though it's the vineyard I've worked in for a while, but since it's gone crazy. Uh, but what do we think? What do we think about open primaries and uh, that, that everybody on one ballot uh, way to choose an election with a runoff to the among the top two? Well, I'll say, jump in as someone who ran in a, uh, yeah. a top two primary that I, I supported. I know it, it definitely made a difference as to the types of political arguments I was making in the primary season, understanding that uh, I was going to need to pull uh, votes from not just Republicans, obviously here in California, but also those uh, across the aisle and knew that I was going to have to be consistent to those promises if I were fortunate enough to get through to the general, which I was. The one thing, the one argument I hear against the top two primary or the open primary is the fact that it does make it very difficult for third and fourth party candidates to qualify. And so if there were to be a a reform to the open primary, I could foresee a top three or a, even a top four primary. I think in many cases that could still distill down and make competitive the primary process across uh, party lines. But I, I do see that as being a viable criticism um, of the system and, and to open it up a little bit further. Pete, I, I think you're where basically I am. Uh, the, the top two, I think California has demonstrated it hasn't worked out the way a lot of we reformers thought it was going to work out and basically has shut down the Republican uh, uh, candidates from even being on the general election ticket. I think what I've been leaning towards is what you were saying before, open primary, maybe three or four in an open primary, going to the general election. And my, my goal would be to have top four primary and ranked choice in the general election. That would be my perfect solution, or as perfect as you can get. It might be a perfect solution, but we were talking about complications uh, in terms of you know people uh, being discouraged from registering to vote because it's such a difficult process. Uh, if we make elections uh, more difficult, I think we may have a problem there as well. And th that's my biggest worry about both ranked choice uh, voting and having different ways of going about choosing who's going to be in the general election than we currently have. It's worked in about 24 municipalities. It's worked well in Maine. I think it's going to work well in Alaska. Uh, and there are a lot of studies. My former boss, Republican uh, Dave Dernberger, has become a big advocate of ranked choice voting. It's worked really well in Minneapolis and in St. Paul. And the polling done, the, the studies done, people understand it. It's not that difficult. It's sort of a canard, uh, but it doesn't have any uh, reality to it in terms of how people in those jurisdictions are acting uh, uh, with respect to it. It works. Okay, let's go to the old mailbag here. It's on the chat room. We have time for a couple of questions. The first one comes from, oh, hit, hit an organ chord here, anonymous. And this is a great question because this is going to be part of the debate this year. And uh, it's, it, it links to the California initiative referendum process, which some people like and some people don't. The question from Anonymous is, one thing that hasn't been discussed much is the wording of California ballot measures, which are written by the attorney general's office. And that in California is an elected office, not a nonpartisan election either. Often it's somebody thinking of being governor. So there is a politicization there. So the questioner writes, which are written by the attorney general's office and are, and are often in the, in the questioner's view biased. 
how can we prevent voter manipulation and make the proposition text more neutral? And for equal time, I'll say that the people in the machine say, oh, the career staff writes that, but we all kind of know how politics works. Uh, what do we think about the writing of initiative language? Because I've done initiative campaigns. The language is critical. That half the campaign is the fight there. In California, especially as a Republican, I, I would have to say that even my fair-minded Democrat friends have to say that the way that a number of initiatives have been written over the last several cycles have been highly partisan. And it does impact how people vote on particular initiatives. I've been a big supporter of a process called the Citizens Initiative Review, which has been used in several states as a way of pulling together a, uh, a random sample of voters to go through a facilitated process. It can only take a, a long weekend, but through that kind of process, you can find a, a writing of a measure that is both understandable uh, by most voters, it's in their language, and also nonpartisan. It sounds like that should be an initiative, and there's some talk it might be uh, to reform the process. Question two is from John Pandel. Is voter registration one of those aspiration activities that one registers because some guy in the front of the supermarket offers to sign them up, then they, the, the registered voter, are fairly indifferent to actually voting? Like people say they attend religious services at double the rate they actually do, or the famous TV ratings test where nobody watched professional wrestling. They were all watching the opera until they put the meters on the back of the TVs to see what they actually were watching. And guess what? Professional wrestling was doing a lot better than opera. Uh, what, what do we think about this, this question? Ted, I'm going to give it to you. You look like you've got an answer coming. <laughs> so, I mean, polling is notoriously um, difficult to get right uh, in terms of like being an accurate reflection of what people's behaviors are. You typically have to do some sort of survey experiment to, to get a better sense of why people make the decisions that they do. Um, whether people are registering because they feel pressured into doing so, um, uh, or not, there's probably some of that. We know from social science research that when people post their I voted stickers on Facebook, it encourages people, there's like a social pressure to now go out and vote because you don't want to be the one uh, you know, in your cohort or in your social circle that's not participating. So some of that civic pressure may be there. I, I think, and I sort of believe the Knight Foundation study here, that the reason people aren't voting, even if they're registered, is because they just don't want to take the time to go do the thing. They're not inspired by the candidates that are running and they're, they're opting out even though they're eligible to, to vote. Um, one of the things the Brennan Center has championed for decades now is automatic voter registration that was brought up earlier in the conversation. Anytime you interact with the government, you are basically automatically registered to vote and you have to opt out of the registration instead of opting in through an online thing, a, a supermarket guy with a postcard. And, um, and usually when people are registered to vote and then election days, the election day arrives, they're more likely to now participate because there's no hurdle of registration that they have to clear before participation is now possible. Look, when I turned 18, um, I didn't get the choice to register in the selective service. I got a, note, uh, a postcard that says you have been registered. Um, and I think voting should be the exact same way, um, for, certainly from, from you know, these days going forward. There's just no reason why registration should be the hurdle for people participating in elections. Okay, here is a question from Patrick Jones. Good question. What's the actual exclusion or in inclusion error? 
it seems like we're trying to get to, quote, zero fraud, which may drive up the exclusion error for people who are legitimately able to vote. And this is an interesting question. What do we think? I, I don't have an answer, but I will say whatever the exclusion error is, we are, we're there. So like whatever the, the, the current incidence of voter fraud is, is an ex, I think is um, an acceptable error percentage um, of participating in elections for us to, to accept the legitimacy of our current elections. And you don't have to take my word for it. You can talk to the Georgia Secretary of State. You can talk to the folks that just completed the audit in Arizona. There is very little to no fraud in, the, uh, in, in our election system. So whatever that acceptable margin of error is, we have not only met it, we have far exceeded it in the security of our elections. And this isn't, this isn't Johnson's uh, pontificating here. This is, this is from secretaries of state across the country for, for years and years. Uh, I would just jump in and say that I agree with that, but I don't, I don't think it's an exclusion or inclusion error. I, I want to get back to this question of administration. You know, when the state of California decided to go to automatic voter registration back in 2018, it was discovered that we had erroneously registered 100,000 Californians in the state. And it's those election administration errors that lead to distrust in our system. Uh, we had a number of states that went to next to no single digit percentage vote by mail to 70, 80, 90 percent. That's what happened in New Jersey, as an example. Uh, we had an instance here in Southern California in Torrance where somebody was found uh, drunk and out of uh, basically in their car, pulled over by a cop and found 300 ballots in their car. Right. I mean, we know these anecdotes and these, again, I don't take as being necessarily voter fraud, but they are election administration errors that if, if we're not, I think, moving along deliberately as we open up the system, uh, then we, we make ourselves susceptible to these kinds of problems. I want to amplify that. The problem we have is because the tribalism now has a moral edge. In other words, it's not, you know, our tribe versus their tribe. It's our tribe is right. They're evil. So anything you do against them is permitted. If I could bring something else in this that surprised me in preparing for this panel, you know, for 2016 and 2018, the percentage of Americans who voted by mail were relatively similar Republicans to Democrats. It was within several percentage points. When we got to 2020, the difference between Democrats and Republicans voting by mail was between 20 and 30%. In some states, it was 50 to 60% difference between Republicans voting by mail and Democrats voting by mail. And again, I don't think this is anything to do with fraud. I, I do think it has to do with, the, with a, a political reality that um, people are understanding how different people are voting and a system's response to that. But I don't think that we've understood completely really what happened in the 2020 election and how we saw these very different ways of voting along partisan lines. Well, everything became a proxy, though. Trump went out and attacked that sort of voting, and then all of a sudden it was, you know, depressed. And see, that's the problem. Old Vern trips over the power cord to one of the machines in the last 10 minutes of voting, and they lose 32 votes. It's immediately, by the other side, assumed to be a conspiracy. There's no human error anymore. Everything is a malicious act. And then it amplifies the cynicism. That's the cancer. Well, I was going to say pretty much what you said. I, I think Donald Trump discouraged Republicans from voting by mail. 
It had been a traditional Republican way of voting. Uh, in fact, in 1960, California was declared as a, as a state carried by Kennedy on election night. And when the mail ballots were counted in the coming week, it turned out that Nixon won, I think, by 30,000 or 60,000 votes because Republicans voted by mail. I think it was incredibly bad strategy on Trump's part to tell his voters not to vote by mail. It was probably as bad as going down to Georgia just before the Georgia Senate elections and say, these elections are rigged and actually not even try to help the two Republicans get elected, mention their names each once. Agreed with that. Yeah, no, no, the RNC agreed. There was panic inside the Republican machine over that. Absentee ballot by mail, easy absentee by mail, had always been a Republican advantage. Pioneered here in California and Trump threw that in the ocean. Um, let's see, do we have time for one very fast question? I'm just trying to see. Uh, you know, with one minute left, I don't think we do. So I better wrap it up. Uh, Bob, I'll let you have the last word, but let me do the commercial on the way out. Please go to our website at the USC Center for the Political Future to learn more about all the cool stuff we do, both in person and on Zoom. We'd love to have your participation through the miracle, the World Wide Web, or as we start opening up events, come to campus. We, we do a lot of stuff. We'd love to have you. But in the short term, join us next Tuesday from 12 to 1 for a discussion I'm really looking forward to on technology and politics. In fact, it's going to be hosted by a deep fake version of me. So check that out. You can register online again at the Center for the Political Futures website. I want to thank our panel for a great discussion. And Bob, closing thoughts. Well, I don't have any closing thoughts. I have thank yous to Linda, Ted, Ralph, and Pete, and to our audience. I really enjoy these programs, and I hope you do too. Thanks. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USC POL Future. That's USC POL Future. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.